Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by guest John Grant. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Excited to be here. So today we are going to talk about helping lawyers improve their delivery workflows so that ditching hourly becomes obvious. I like the sound of that. <laughs> nice. But, yeah. But first, could you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. So um, as you said, my name is John Grant. I go by the Agile Attorney. Um, I've got sort of a, well, I'll give you my mission first, and then I'll, I'll do the quick version of my backstory. Um, my mission is to help uh, legal professionals, legal teams uh, improve their practices by making them more profitable, uh, scalable, and sustainable for themselves and the communities they serve. Um, I do it through a lot of different things, and this sort of gets into my background. I um, I come from a family of lawyers, uh, which meant that when uh, it came time to sort of choose my profession, I wanted nothing to do with the legal profession at first uh, and wound up in the technology industry instead. And I went on one of those sort of super fun rocket ship rides of the early 90s, mid 90s dot com uh, era where I caught on with a company that eventually merged with Getty Images. And we did one of those um I think it was probably a disruptive innovation story before that term was maybe overused mm. where you know we we use technology but also a lot of really healthy business practices um to first um sort of uh, uh take over well first to disrupt and then eventually reconsolidate the entire stock photography industry around ourselves and mm -hmm. uh you know to the point now we're getting sort of a household name um, and that really was sort of a, a, I mean, a lot of ways, a first grad school for me. So I, I learned a lot about um, project management and um, the importance of corporate culture and systems and all sorts of things. But the, the key was, is that we were never just using technology for technology's sake. We were using technology as a tool for making our customers' lives better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key takeaway. Cool. And then what happened next? You ended up you ended up getting sucked into the family business. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was sort of a funny. Uh, I I never really planned on. I I sort of took the LSAT as a plan B. And uh, anyone who's a lawyer uh, is probably chuckling right now because I think the the profession is full of people that took the LSAT as a plan B and um, <laughs> wanted going to law school and loved it. Um, and, you know, I'm really glad that I did the thing before law school. I think being a little bit older, uh, having some real world experience, if, if nothing else, nothing that the law professors did in their like Socratic interrogation techniques, uh, would phase me because I had presented to our CFO before and no <laughs> one was going to be as tough as she was, um, in, in my giddy days. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, I came out of law school. I, uh, I actually was back in house at Giddy for a while. I then had my own practice, but I eventually realized that I liked working on my practice more than in it. And mm. I sort of made the pivot slowly at first into doing more uh, legal consulting, legal, legal operations consulting. Um, I've had a few different life cycles since then. I, um, I've been a solo a couple of times. I've worked with a couple other people um, a few times. I worked with a consulting firm for a while. Uh, and I was in-house at a big AmLaw 150 law firm for a while. So mm -hmm. a lot of different um, things that I've learned in different uh, uh, parts of that career. Interesting. So one of the things, you know, the premise here is uh, improved, improve delivery workflows for lawyers. And in in an industry, well, first of all, I love having lawyers on the show because it's kind of like the the prototypical hourly billing scenario. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but there are others. Uh, I had someone on recently who I don't think the show's out yet, but um, he sort of streamlines operations for car repair shops like mechanics. And sure. They also bill by the hour. And, right. and he's like, geez, I'm having a really hard time getting traction. It's like, well, why would someone give you money to make less money? So, <laughs> right. So like, what do you mean? Let's drill into like, what do you mean about improve their delivery workflows? Yeah. So one of the tools I use for framing um, is that in any law practice, and really this is probably true of any business, there are three high-level systems. There's the getting the work system, there's the doing the work system, or what I'm calling the delivery system, and then there's the getting paid system. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, um, regardless of how lawyers bill, um, 
the any problems that they're having in their gating paid system probably stems from a shortcoming in either they're doing the work or getting the work systems. Um, and so if you've accumulated a bunch of AR, uh, you know, there are tools and there are things that, that you can do to improve that. They're actually relatively straightforward. It's a simple problem to solve in the legal industry. Um, but that's not necessarily where I focus. Uh, at the other end, the getting the work system, right? That's sales, marketing, biz dev. Uh, I definitely uh, work with a lot of my clients on that, but it's not where I consider my core competency to be. Mm -hmm. So my core competency is in the delivery system, the doing the work system. Yep. And uh, one of the things that I have found in doing this for you know, coming up on uh, a decade now of uh, these, this consulting work um, is that Number one, law is very much a seller's market. There is more demand for legal work than there are supply of lawyers or legal professionals to do the work. And that's true all the way up into the very tippy top end of the market. I think that's that's some of the market forces. And maybe we can come back to that mm. in a little bit more detail. Um, but bottom line is, if you hang a shingle uh, doing, especially in sort of a people law sector, it's not so much a question of getting work. It's a question of getting the work that you want. Mm -hmm. um, but let's assume for a minute that you're able to sign up uh, all the clients that you want or probably more clients than you want, which is one of the problems. What winds up happening is the relative inefficiencies of delivering legal work in these delivery workflows, right? The doing the work system that I mm -hmm. talked about uh, winds up slowing down. Um, th there's a, a relationship known as Little's Law and it uh, basically says that the time it takes to de to deliver any one widget worth of work uh, is proportional to the number of widgets you have in progress in your system. And so one of the things that I see that's, that's really common with lawyers, uh, and I think probably other service professionals too, is that they sign up lots and lots and lots of work, which creates a lot of work in progress or WIP. Mm -hmm. um, and the tremendous amount of WIP that they're carrying winds up causing every one unit or every individual client to have a worse and worse experience because of how long it takes to deliver um, whatever it is that you've signed up to deliver. So I'm being you know, intentionally generic because there's obviously lots of different kinds of law practice out there. Uh, and I, I see this problem in almost all of them. So they just have a ton of parallel projects. A ton of parallel projects. Yeah. And so in the agile world, and that's, you know, obviously I call myself at the agile attorney. Um, <laughs> one of the things that they uh, focus on a lot is multi-project environments. And a lot of times when I'm talking to folks that do agile with technology teams or other folks, um, and they'll be talking about multi-project environments and they'll be talking about like five or 10. And for law firms, it's not uncommon for it to be 70 or 80 different matters, different projects going on at the same time. Mm. So that that creates, I'm going to guess that creates a lot of non-billable overhead. It does, and so it, it's interesting. And this this is one of the things. And and you know, when you and I spoke, um, you know, a couple of days ago before uh, starting this up, yep. I mentioned that one of the problems with um, sort of the the legal delivery systems is that that non-billable overhead actually kind of gets billed a lot of the time. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, um, or it's not always clear when it gets billed or when it doesn't get billed, or it, it can be a little insidious when it creeps in. And so you don't necessarily know that you're billing for it. Hmm. Um, but the switching costs, there, there's a, a, a term out of the agile world, and I think this comes from Lean as well, that I've really liked and been using a lot lately, known as failure demand. And failure demand is basically any demand on your time and attention that is the result of, of failing to do something correctly the first time, um, or maybe not having good processes and procedures. And so a, a real life manifestation of that, and, and this comes from a client that I've been doing a lot of work with recently, where um, one of the th reasons he felt like he couldn't wrap us, you know, actually buckle down and focus on doing a bunch of the drafting tasks that he needed to get out the door was that he was constantly responding to client emails and client voicemails that were effectively people that he'd already promised work to calling up and saying, hey, what's the status? Where's my stuff? I thought oh, I'd have right. this by now. Yeah, there's a great Amazon story. Uh, the The reason or a huge motivation, and this might be apocryphal, but I, I, I read that 
a big reason for Amazon wanting to make the shipping window like a day is like quick, quicker than humanly possible at the time, much quicker than humanly possible at the time was that they, they could see and measure the costs of customers who had ordered stuff, contacting customer service to say, where's my stuff. And he was like, we could cut out all, you know, if we're spending $10 million across the organization to answer that question, then that gives us a budget of $10 million to just like get them the stuff. So they stop calling us. Right. Right. so I have another story that just popped into my mind where I'm, I'm <laughs> the failure demand. That's very interesting. It's it, like I, I just for for the past 10 weekends or something, I've been rebuilding my garage door and I okay. got it. I got it to a phase where the the door was built and in place, but the store didn't have the brackets that I needed to use to attach the springs that would allow me to lift it. Mm hmm. So I got everything, I the old door down too late, like cross that Rubicon. Now the new one's <laughs> up, but it doesn't open or it's very, you know, it's like two or 300 pounds too heavy to lift. Right. And, and that day we had a, uh, a, like a big vanity, like for the, for the new bathroom delivered. So like a piece of furniture in the driveway needed to be in the garage and it was going to start raining. So <laughs> since, since I wasn't able to like finish the project quickly, it created this window that was a brand new problem that wouldn't have existed if right. I ha- had been able to put the brackets on when I put the door on, which I, d- I didn't realize it was until it was too late. So then I had to go out and buy all of this stuff just to open the door, right? Just to, like a mechanical <laughs> system to pull the door open manually so I could put the thing in the garage and close it before it started raining. And it was like such a physical, like that work never would have had to be done if I had rearranged the, or I had just like waited until I knew I had all the pieces I needed to, to kind of cross the Rubicon. But, uh, it, it's, it's work that didn't need to exist in a different organization or if it had been more streamlined or if I knew what I was doing, <laughs> then it wouldn't, it, it like, it's not, this isn't a question of doing all that work faster. It's a question of doing it in a way that erases a whole bunch of work. Yeah, I I think that's I mean I love that example and it's one where uh, it, you know it's totally normal as you know I I assume that you're well I know from from listening to your show right that uh garage door repair is not your primary line of work <laughs> therefore it is um understandable that as as a a, a rookie as a DIYer that you would get it wrong right. but if you'd hired a garage door company and they'd done that to you you'd be furious. Oh yeah. Right? You'd be out of your skin and I think what happens with you know advanced professionals, whatever they happen to be, right? Lawyers, um, CPAs, software developers, whatever, um, right? You expect a certain when when you're hiring those professional services, especially high dollar professional services, you expect a certain attention to detail and a certain level of uh, planning. And I'm not saying that that lawyers don't do that, but I think that a lot of law practices that I encounter, at least. Um, they don't invest in upfront planning. They sort of make a lot of assumptions about, well, this is how it usually goes and this is how I've done it in the past, but there isn't really a planning and strategy phase sometimes. So it's, some lawyers are better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it, well, and even when there is, and this is where it gets into, you know, all of the natural human tendencies around delays and, and things like that, mm-hmm. is that when the lawyer does plan, oftentimes they plan for this sort of ideal situation where, of course, I'm going to be spending the right amount of time and attention at the right times to your matter, to your your, your legal case, your project, whatever it happens to be. Um, but realistically, if you're not managing your workloads up front, then chances are some other emergency is going to come in and steal that capacity away which then has this ripple effect and domino effect. And then all of a sudden you've got a vanity out in the rain, right? Mm-hmm. Metaphorically. Right. Um, that is causing some expense or some cost at some other part of the project. Right. Yeah. It's completely unnecessary expense. But if you, but if they're billing for it, whether insidiously or not, what's the financial motivation for them to, you know, pay you a million bucks to spend a month of probably painful <laughs> systemic changes to the organization to make less money? Or like explain, yeah, so, <laughs> explain to me how that's not the, the calculus. Well, it, it it is at a very um you know nuts and bolts, and I guess um 
at a thin layer, that is the calculus, right? And, and you know, back when I worked at the big firm, uh, you know, the Sam Law 150 firm, I was the the head of the legal project management department. And it was this sort of funny thing where, I mean, really the firm had a legal project management department for marketing purposes only, right? They, they wanted to be able to say they had it. Mm. And partners would call me up and they say, hey, I'm in this negotiation with, you know, XYZ client and um, they want to do the legal project management thing on this uh, on this case. And so can you do that thing? And, and I'd have to pause for a minute and say, well, you know, a few things you need to know. No, number one, it's not a thing I do for you. It's something I do with you. Right? Mm-hmm. This, this is a team sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but number two, the reason your client is asking about legal project management is that it will make you more efficient, which means that you will bill fewer hours on this case. And if you bill fewer hours on this case, you're going to have to then go get the next case, which may involve some non-billable work in order to do it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was really transparent that part of, you know, at a high level, what you're asking me to do is reach into your wallet and take money out of it. Um, so who would say yes to this? Or not Not many people did. Well, uh, a lot fewer people did than I would hope, but that, that was my intro piece. And then I would go on to talk about why this is the right thing for preserving customer relationships and making sure that that you know you're sort of having these win-wins and mm-hmm. you'll never want for business if you are doing the right thing by by your client. Mm-hmm. Um but and, and there were definitely some partners that were very interested in that. And we had some very successful engagements doing um different types of work, including some flat fee work um if, of different sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, within that firm. But if it was a, a a more traditional partner that wanted a more traditional hourly relationship, um, I often didn't hear back from them. And, right. and you know, to this day, right, I, I'm not trying to sell to those people uh, in my consulting practice. If, if you really truly believe that the billable hour um, is the right model, is the right model for you, um, and you're not sure you ever want to move off of it, then I'm probably not going to be someone that's going to help you in your practice. Yeah. Now, that said, I do have a lot of clients that are still traditional hourly billers. And the reason why they like working with me is that it reduces their personal feeling of overwhelm and their their own sense of having too many balls in the air, having to work long nights or weekends or all of the things, right? The, the, the work too much. And so a lot of the work that I do, even with hourly billing clients, uh, especially in the early parts of my engagement, is really about sort of turning down the temperature from that roiling boil (laughs) that many law practices are to something more like a gentle simmer uh, where it feels a little bit easier to work with. Now, the side effect of that is that um, once we start putting systems in place that make the work more... Uh, feel better from the practitioner's perspective, they often will then start to think, well, oh, gosh, if I'm billing fewer hours for this, I'm starting to lose money billing hourly. Maybe I need to think about converting this to um, a flat fee or converting this to value-based pricing. Right. Yeah. Once things are under control. Okay. So there's like this, this overwhelming, overwhelming demand leads to too much work. And yeah. And I've, uh, I've encountered people who do what you do for like Geraldine Carter, who does this similar th- sort of thing, not exactly, but, but she takes CPAs from crazy hours to non crazy hours without, right. without reducing their income. So yeah. it's like, there are for, for anybody in the audience who is like not getting enough leads, it, there isn't as much demand or they're not differentiated as, as much in the market. You've got a different problem. You need more leads, but you know, as John has pointed out here, the, that's not typically the case with lawyer. Like they can have as much work as they want. And it's the same with CPAs. You can have as much work work as you want. Right. And it's like, okay, now what? Now I've, I've created this prison almost. It's like, am I working for the business or is the business working for me? It's like, Rrr. and, uh, okay. So I love this. So, so you get them down, you things, well, what, what is it that you're doing? Are you systematizing things? Are you creating checklists are you adding automation are you bringing software into the mix more heavily are you having them cut out stuff that was just busy work like what are the kinds of things that you would do to streamline this operation yeah so uh you know it's a combination of all those things um 
I I have I don't follow it religiously, but there's a methodology that's known as the Kanban method, right? Which is one of the offshoots of Agile, and Kanban is kind of the most confusing of them in name <laughs> because it's a it's a you know the Kanban methodology kind of comes from Lean, it kind of comes from Agile. The Lean version is a little different from the Agile version. I, I try not to get too hung up on all of that. Um, but I do like, you know, the, there's an organization called Kanban University, and I've sort of, in the last year and a half or so, I've been going a little bit deeper into a lot of their writings and, and doing some of their trainings. And, and it really is a good sense-making tool. So there's a few things that come from from that that have been really helpful for me um, and in, in you working with my clients. One of them is just starting to measure some things with respect to your delivery pipeline. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, a lot of lawyers are measuring the number of leads they're getting in their marketing pipeline, how they convert those leads into clients. But once the work enters the delivery systems, they're not tracking anything anymore. And so- <laughs> Just hours. It's just hours. And so I try to do just some real simple metrics, like how many cases or how many matters, right? We use those terms interchangeably in legal. How many matters are you opening in a month versus closing in a month? If you're opening more than you're closing, that means that your matters in flight or your matters in progress is going to go up, which according to Little's Law means that your delivery of any one matter is going to now take longer. Yep. And so by doing those measurements, I try to begin to help lawyers be able to um, put some objective numbers around the thing that they're feeling around overwhelm, right? So the overwhelm is very emotional, very sort of visceral, but it's hard to put a, a, a data point on it. And so doing those simple measurements, uh, the other thing we wind up measuring is what's the average case duration. And, um, you know, if you've had enough lawyers on your show that you'll know that their favorite answer to questions like that is it depends. <laughs> um, but um, it, there is a, you know, there is an average, even if it's a, uh, an average that's got a long tail in terms of what's affecting it. And so really trying to um, start with whatever they're doing and then begin to put some processes in place. And so checklists are a big one. Um, I look at checklists a little bit differently than a lot of people. I don't think of checklists as to-do lists so much as they are quality standards. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned one uh, in your garage door example. Uh, there actually are two important stages where these quality control checklists come in. Uh, the one that most people are familiar with is the definition of done, right? What did, something isn't complete to spec until all of these things on this checklist are true or at least accounted for. But the other one that is equally important is the definition of ready, which is what are all the things that have to be true or at least accounted for before you even begin the work. Mm. And it's, it's that lack of definition of ready that, um, or, or putting in place a definition of ready, I should say is one of the easiest and most transformative things that I do when working with, um, with new clients, because what lawyers do, and I think any professional services uh, business, especially if you're not keeping these metrics, it's really easy to say, well, what's one more case right now, right? This is what I do. I handle estate plans or I handle criminal defense, right? Whatever it happens to be. Um, What's going to be the harm if this client who called and needs my services, if I just fit them in? And when you're not counting things, it's really hard to tell. And, and you know, one of the funny things about Little's Law and the relationship between work and progress and all the rest, and I'll, I'll give you the, the traffic um, on the freeway example, is it's really, you know, obviously, if the freeway is mostly empty, then cars are going the speed limit, if not, you know, 10 to 50 miles over the speed limit pretty regularly. You can get a freeway up to about 75% capacity, you know, 70 to 80% capacity maybe. And cars are still going pretty close to the speed limit. But once you get to that sort of 80 to 8 to 90% capacity, that's when things really start to slow down dramatically. Right. And so I think if you if you don't know what that capacity is, then any additional increment really has the potential to create some disasters for for you and the clients that are already in there. Yeah, it's it it, it reminds me of a bunch of things that we don't need to go into, but it's back to the it's a little bit like the garage door example where if where work existed, so in the traffic example, like work 
work has been created out of nothing for the drivers. Like they have to make pay way more attention, be way more active in their driving. Yep. You know, the speed the speed goes way down because everybody has to be way more careful. And it's work that didn't need to be there if you had more capacity. Right. Now, you know, so one of the one of the or, or if you managed your existing capacity better. True. Yeah, right. Right. So what what kind is there any pattern in the psychographic sort of the worldview or the the outlook of the people who are interested in in doing this because so like the other thing is like if you're at there's a high demand when you have employees especially to be running at full capacity at all times like employee utilization mm. is is something that's mm -hmm. measured quite a bit so like i almost feel like someone needs to be unless they're just like crazy overwhelmed and they're thinking about closing up shop and going in-house for a cushy job <laughs> or something like that like what what is the um profile if there is one of the person that is feeling a, a pain that they want to do something about even if that means not full employee utilization and not maximum billable hours is what what's in common is yeah. there an age a gender uh a certain number of kids <laughs> of a certain age a size, a headcount of the practice. You know, um, I, I would say oh, that's that's an interesting one. Um, and, and well, before before I answer your question, I will say that um, resource utilization is something that that I consider to be an anti-pattern. Um, which Agreed. that's a word that I have to explain to lawyers. Totally agree. Um, they they don't know what anti-patterns are, but. Um, you know, by maximizing your utilization, you are begging for gridlock. Right. Exactly. You're begging for it. And the the other thing is there's this, well, again, here's an anti-pattern that I see very frequently is a, a lawyer becomes overburdened and conventional wisdom of law practice management is when you get overburdened, you need to either hire or delegate or some combination of hmm. get the work off of your plate. And the tendency that uh, I think any high-end professional has or, you know, an expert um, has is to push the easy work off on other people. And for lawyers, that's often some of the upstream work. So the client intake and onboarding um, to the extent that they don't want the FaceTime with the, the lawyer, um, the client doesn't want the FaceTime with the lawyer to, to make that purchase decision, which is often true. Um mm -hmm. But then the initial sort of research and drafting, right, it gets pushed on to paralegals or associates. The problem is, is that that eventually hits a quality assurance phase in the lawyer's workflow, right? And, and they don't think of it as QA, but again, I came from this technology background. So it, um, you know, they, they think of it as attorney review or something, but it, really what they're doing is saying, I'm going to review the work of this other person to make sure they did it to my standard. Mm -hmm. And there's... A couple of intertwining problems that that happen, especially if you maximize utilization of those people you hired upstream, uh, you'll be spending all of your time doing QA. And to the extent that you, the lawyer, are also maybe doing intake or maybe doing some drafting, or maybe you just want to have a life outside of the office, if you're constantly having to do QA on other people's work, it's really hard to feel like you're ever going to get off that hamster wheel. Mm. And it feels like a real false economy. It, it can be, you know, I, I ran into this very specifically, again, with, with one of my uh, consulting clients. And one of the things we realized in mapping the workflow and measuring some things, and, you know, yes, we use Kanban boards and all sorts of fun tools to make work visible, which I think is helpful in any knowledge work environment. I think, mm, I think yeah. getting some, some visual, physical sense of the, of the work can be really helpful. But uh, he very quickly realized that and he had an associate that he wants to keep, but he started putting that associate on um, the task of just closing out old files, old matters. And the associate was like, what are you talking about? Why do I want to do this? Like, I went to law school to like draft stuff, not to like close files. That seems like paralegal work, but that seems like admin work. But mm -hmm. what, what this lawyer had discovered was that he needed to find work for this person to do that was downstream of QA that wasn't going to require the time and the attention of the lawyer to make sure it got done correctly so that the lawyer could spend some time doing, doing the catch up. Um, Interesting. The, the other thing, and, and this is related, and then I'll, I, I'll get back to your question about the sort of demographic um, 
One of the other problems I run into all the time with lawyers doing quality assurance is that they don't have an objective standard that they're checking against, right? They're basically using their knowledge and skill and experience, but it's all in their heads. And so the the joke that I make sometimes is that the the lawyer version of quality assurance is, well, I better read this a fourth time to make sure I didn't miss anything on the first three <laughs> passes. And that's a... <laughs> you you laugh. It's very real. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and it, it and it's because they haven't sort of done that extra step of saying, really, what am I trying to accomplish here? The beautiful thing is that if you take the time and you you begin to express your quality standards in a in a written form, then you can actually push those standards upstream and say, hey, these are these aren't just my quality check standards. These are also your drafting standard. And it winds up becoming more cultural and sort of improving the work upstream of where the bottleneck is actually happening. Mm, interesting. Um, to answer your question, it, it, in terms of your know, commonalities, I won't say this is the only one, but, but definitely... Um, Transition planning or, you know, firms that have been operating one way for, you know, successfully for many, many years, right? Probably decades. And all of a sudden there are newer, usually younger people that uh, are moving into management and they're starting to sort of question some of the assumptions around the old ways of working. And... I would say some of my most successful clients are um, situations where uh, sometimes it is, you know, in very small practices, uh, it's not uncommon for son or daughter of uh, of an attorney to sort of be taking over the practice and saying, okay, if I'm going to be stuck with this for the next 30 years of my life, <laughs> we're going to have to change some things from the way that mom or dad did things. Right. Um, that same idea happens in, you know, when it's not obviously um, moving to a family member as well. So when there's any sort of succession planning, transition planning, um, understanding, right, it's the whole Ron Popeil infomercial, right? At, at some point, they they have their own little quiet, there must be a better way uh, <laughs> moment. Yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully, if, if my um, content marketing is doing its job, then they will find me <laughs> when they have that moment, mm -hmm. if they confess it into Google. Right. If they confess to Google, that's funny. Okay. Well, that, that makes tons of sense. And I've seen the, I've seen the same thing happen in other, in uh, several other industries for other reasons where the status quo is essentially an extinction level event. Like, like the status quo will not change until there's an air quotes extinction level event where the people who got the business to where it is over the past 40 years retire and the next generation starts to take over. And, you know, some of those kids grew up with the internet and, and they <laughs> have all, yes. have always seen like, I, you know, have, have had the experience of like, I can't stand paper-based processes as a customer when I have to deal with, I don't know, the school department or the IRS or some other, you know, bureaucratic institution. So like, why are we operating in that same way? Like, is there not, you know, there's gotta be a better way. Is there not a better way to do this? Right. It's, it's so, okay. So the thing about, let's just loop back to the original premise of this episode, which was like, once you get things down to a nice active simmer, instead of boiling over constantly, what, how does the idea of ditching hourly become clear to them? Is it just like patently obvious that like, oh, wow, we've got, we could really predict scope on a huge class of matters. Why don't we just fix price them and deliver better results for less money for more profit? You know, is it, yeah, does it so become obvious or do you introduce them to this notion or do they have to be led horse to water style? I would say that most lawyers, uh, m most of my clients, I should say, I don't know about most lawyers in general, but will will start to come to some realization on their own, um, right? And, and part of it is just a function of not being on the treadmill, which means you have a second to to catch your breath and look around and and start thinking more expand about things. Uh, I'll give you a great example. Sort of one of my longest term clients and. This is uh, this is the guy that I've been working with for I think seven years now. He's my my long I think he's my single longest client, and 
a lot of what we did in the early going, and, and this is a multi-year process, by the way, uh, and it doesn't have to be, but um, when you've got a really busy law firm, it's it's hard to carve out the time to do the process improvement work. So it winds up being very incremental. Um, but eventually we got to a place um, with, with this practice where uh, they felt pretty good about the state of their day-to-day processing of the work. And uh, this is an estate planning and uh, administration practice in California. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he had been doing for a long time, which he just thought was a normal part of his sales cycle, was saying, hey, send me your existing estate plan and I'll take a look at it and I'll do what in consulting we would call a gap analysis. Um, you know, what What is your estate plan actually doing versus what you hope it's doing? And uh, he would create a nice flowchart for it and um, do a bunch of things and then show it to the client and or the prospective client at this point. And the prospective client was very regularly saying, oh, my gosh, I understand my estate plan for the first time ever. Like, why didn't the last lawyer who actually drafted this darn thing do this for me? Right. And what my client learned is that that is a marketable product in and of itself. Oh, yeah. And by doing by doing a little bit more research, a little bit of talking with customers, he's actually now turned what we're calling an assessment project uh, product into a five-figure product. And he value prices that he doesn't, you know, he, he's got a ballpark of where he thinks it should land, but the price that he will wind up quoting for that assessment um, is related to the net worth of the person that he's doing it for. Uh, right. Because that's how much money they've got at risk, or that's the sort of things that are they're in play. And so it's actually part of what I love about him is that he took it all the way almost straight to value pricing. He didn't go through the thing that I think a lot of folks have to to go through, including myself, of having the step of going from hourly to then flat fee, then to value pricing. He right. just went for it and, right. and went for value pricing. And um and that's been great. He still does some flat fee work too. So the the other piece um that we've uh that we've wound up doing is saying okay you know the basic once he actually sells the estate plan the basic estate plan that is a flat fee and it's the same for everybody but it's all the ancillary documents that you might need and the more complicated your estate the more complicated your the sources of your wealth um the more different little things you're going to need and so that's where he almost builds to value pricing through the combination of the deliverables that he has to to put together in order to build this estate plan right yeah it makes sense so cool I, i'm looking at the clock so uh, we probably have to wrap up soon but i want to ask a, a self-serving question which is you know you've been doing this for you know i think you said coming up on a decade and and have you across that period of time has it felt like there is you know more or fewer lawyers billing hourly do you, does it feel like a a small minority is increasing of folks who are giving some sort of flat fee whether it's a kind of productized menu driven approach or right. if it's if it's value pricing does it, do you, do you feel like there's any movement or is it pretty static I think there's been a ton of movement. I think there's more movement than most people, most people in the profession want to recognize. Um, I think that there are now entire practice areas where flat fee is the norm, uh, estate planning being one of them. Um, immigration uh, is very, very common for most immigration work for flat fee to be the norm. Um, <clears throat> Trying to think of others. So there's a trademark is another one, um, different types of IP. Um, where it just is is almost automatic. Um, there are others. Uh, there's been a lot of movement towards subscription type legal pricing. Uh, another client that I'm working with right now that's a, a startup firm that does, they're effectively an outside general counsel model. Um, and subscription has become more and more common in that type of practice where, you know, we don't know what's going to come up uh, month in and month out, but we know that over the course of a year, you're likely to have these sorts of issues. And so, you know, if you pay me X dollars a year, payable monthly or payable quarterly, um, we'll just handle most of the normal stuff. And then every once in a while, there might be some big project and we'll either flat fee that project on its own or we'll you know, default to hourly if we really don't know how to scope it. Right. Um, but I, I would say those have become way, way more common. Mm. Um, I, I think in the biggest law practices, and, and you know, this is part of the problem is that there's 
um, you know, what's known as the AMLA 100, the top 100 firms in, in the U.S. as ranked by a particular trade magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, even more than that, there's like, you know, like 15 to 20 like mega firms that are largely global. Um, they're not necessarily going, they're not necessarily ditching hourly. Um because they have such market power, they really do get to control a lot of their pricing. Um, although they also have the most sophisticated clients, you know, which are Fortune 100 companies that are also trying to, to dictate pricing. But I think they get outsized attention. I think um, for most lawyers, most law practices, um, I think that folks are far more willing to uh, explore and implement different ways of uh exchanging value for their services than they were certainly when i you know first hung my shingle back in 2008 that's good to hear cool i i you know i i've had a number of lawyers on the show because like i said it is kind of the prototypical industry the hourly industry and the the thing that i uh, recommend to software developers who are my core audience being one um but would probably work for any you know if if some lawyer is listening to the show. Someone shared it with you. And like, you tell me what you think, John, but even coming up with from a, from a pricing slash billing standpoint, even coming up with one service that you can comfortably fix price, whether I don't care if you based on cost or whatever, you know, you just set a, set a decent average price on it that you feel like would be, you know, across, across 10 clients, you do mm-hmm. well, you know, some would be more work than others, but you've got this one fixed price offering and when you sell one of those things and then you go to deliver it, at least this was my experience when I first switched to fixed, my entire head turned upside down because mm-hmm. every hour I worked, I was losing money instead of every hour I worked, I was making money. And it turned on this mechanism in my brain that immediately went to like, how can I make this more effective and efficient, quicker, less work for me without cutting corners? And it just, this whole mechanism in my brain that had, that previously I would have said existed I would have said that I'm always doing the work as quickly as I can for my clients because I bill by the hour and it would be unethical to do anything else. Right. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of of, uh, dormant machinery came to life (laughs) and was like, I got very creative about how not to lose that hour. Right. And, And not losing that hour without cutting corners is better for the client because they get their result more quickly. So absolutely. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to experiment with this, just create one productized service, just create one thing. Like what's, what's the, the slam dunk thing you've done a thousand times at the beginning of a certain type of matter over and over again. And just like, so it's 2000 bucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think it's, you know, a couple of things that are sort of mental blockers that I run into for, for lawyers. Number one, they think they have to, to flat fee an entire matter. Right. So mm-hmm. there, that, that you're going to do it from soup to nuts. And I think the far easier way to go about it, um, and frankly, the far safer way to go about it, because it allows you to learn as you go, uh, is to do phased flat fees. Yep. So don't, don't try to, you know, and again, with a relatively simple processing matter, you know, and I don't want to diminish the, the work that immigration lawyers do, but going for a green card adjustment of status, it's a pretty known set of things that you're going to do. So flat feed that, that's easy. Uh, Everyone always tells me, oh, you can't flat fee litigation. It's too complicated. It's too, um, you know, there's too many different variables that come into play. And I've worked with uh, at least five different firms at this point that have done flat fee litigation in different ways. It's totally possible. Wow. That's Um, another episode right there. Yeah. And again, usually by not by flat fee in an entire case, but by turning it into phase flat fee. Mm -hmm. And you don't flat, you flat fee the phases of litigation. not the entire thing. And and that way you can make adjustments. If you learn something in an earlier phase, that's like, oh gosh, this next phase is going to be bigger than I thought it was going to be. Great. Have that conversation, right? That's, that's the inherently agile approach to doing the work is you, you, you know, the whole point of sort of scoping things out in chunks is so that you maximize your learning about what the next thing is going to look like. Um, the, the other piece, and you you hinted at this because you said, you know, do it for 10 people, is that lawyers, it's really hard to break out of that mindset of, well, the way that I'm going to compare whether I made money on this flat fee is I'm going to 
look at what I would have charged had I done it hourly. And if I make less money on the flat fee on this one matter than I would have had I billed hourly, then flat fee obviously doesn't work because I'm losing money. <laughs> and you know what I tell people is when you, when you convert to flat fee and even you know to phase flat fees, you can't look at the individual units that you sell anymore. You have to look at it like a product line. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to look at it like that, right? Yeah, and so you 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 have to say okay, over the course of ten or twenty or a hundred uh, sales of this widget, yeah, I'm gonna make more money on some than on the other. But how is the product line? Uh, what is the health of the product line overall? Not what is the sale of you know what what's the health of one individual sale? But that's a really hard mindset to get out of. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. There's another factor to it that's super important, which is they'd be making that decision flat fees don't work before they've had any chance to let it sink in and optimize the cost of delivery. Right. So it's it's right. like even if they came close to what they would have made hourly, they're they have set themselves it's a win, a huge win because they've set themselves up in a way that they can deliver that thing probably in half of the time for the same money. So like, there's no way right. to optimize an hourly profit, profit wise. There's no way to optimize hourly. There's nothing because no. assuming you're honest, if somebody buys an hour, it takes you an hour to deliver it. And time is the, the only meaningful cost in this, in this situation. I mean, there's like maybe rent or computers or something, but it, there's just not that, you know, it's like time is the main expense here for the seller. Right. And, the, to even come close, to even get into the ballpark of what you would have charged on your hourly rate on your first engagement, you can pretty much cut, you can pretty much double it. You say, you're like, okay, well, in a year, the profit on this will be double what it is right now, and I'll be crushing my old hourly rate. Like, if my old hourly rate was $200 an hour or $500 an hour, it's going to be $400 an hour effectively or $1,000 yep. an hour effectively because I've had time to systematize the process, cut out the flab. And just do the stuff that is going to deliver the best outcome quickest for my clients. Right. It, it, like that, that revelation doesn't hit you. Well, it hit it me right away. It takes time to build. Yeah. yeah but but it, even when it hits you, it takes time to to put into practice. To make it real. Yeah. And I, I think that's key. Is and, and I think those, you know, that sort of back of the envelope is pretty close to what I see. I think if, if I can if I can get a client of mine, and I usually don't have trouble because once they've done the work with me on their you know, internal, you know, again, they're doing some of the internal systems work while they're still billing hourly most of the time. So you know, I'm sort of preloading that learning curve a little bit. And then eventually they start to see, oh, well, I could could be making more money if I weren't billing hourly. And that makes the transition a lot smoother. But even if you were to go sort of cold turkey, um, I I still think you're right. I think that there's probably a six to 12 month window where you just have to commit to it. Mm -hmm. Because if you've got cold feet, it, and I will also say the, the product that you deliver six or 12 months from now may look very little like the product that you imagine on you know, day one or week one of, of doing this work, right? The whole point and the whole reason to, to make this conversion is so that you can learn more about how to deliver things that clients find valuable and will pay you better money for than if you just sort of threw up your hands and said, I don't know, I'll just pay me 400 an hour. Yeah. Tell me when to stop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. A, a lot. It's like on that point of it might look very different in 12 months than what you, what you do now or what you thought you might be doing a year from when you started. Uh, I, I get a lot of software developers who are like, you know, well, show me, can you give me some examples? And you know, it's a genuine question. Like, can you give me some examples of software developers who are uh, either using value pricing or, or have productized services? And it's really hard because once they make that, once they understand, like once a, a someone who knows how to write software understands the the concept of real profit, they mm -hmm. change their business so that because they're like, oh well, I'm not going to offer services anymore. That's a terrible. <laughs> it's like it's like <laughs> right. risky, hard. It's like I'm going to make a SaaS or I'm going to create an info product or I'm going to. So they kind of leave the profession. Air quotes. Um, mm -hmm. It's different. It's different from lawyers, but because I would suspect that few, few people are just, you know, after all of the sunk cost of law school and, and the, the identity and all of that is probably fewer people making a pivot like that from, from like service to product. They, I know they exist, but it's pretty common in software 
where somebody's right. like, oh, I'm going to stop building software for clients and I'm going to build, build software for my own, for me, and then sell it to people like me. And they have a tendency to get that taste of fixed price and they're like, oh, I'm going to go to product because right. fixed price services is a little riskier. So it's like, mm -hmm. okay. I mean, the reward is potentially higher as well, but in both, the reward can be very high. Yeah. Anyway. I would say in, in legal, the, the thing that I see, and certainly again, among uh, some of my clients is the pivot from doing delivery work into doing strategy work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And if yeah. you can outsource, if, if you can build systems or or outsource or, you know, we, we haven't mentioned AI or chat GPT, thank you, <laughs> um, but, but all, all, all these things, right, that, you know, that, that do promise to take time out of the technical work of delivering widgets, right? Le legal document widgets in this case. Right. Um, then, you know, the, the natural place to go with all of the sunk costs of going to law school is moving into strategy work. Right. Yeah. Increase your altitude of involvement in my terminology. Right. Cool. Well, this has been amazing. Thanks so much, John. No, thanks for having me. So it's always, always fun to get to, to actually interact with you on the podcast instead, uh, right. of, uh, instead of being a passive listener. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, you know, if there are any lawyers listening who have this sort of uh, this modern worldview, where can they go to find out more about what you're doing and maybe get in touch? Sure. Uh, AgileAttorney.com, or if you Google Agile Attorney, I, I think I'm still the first person that comes up. Um, there, there are some others. Um, yeah, I would say follow me on the socials, but that's all in flux right now too. Uh, I guess LinkedIn <laughs> is probably the, the, the easiest Safest place to one. find me. Um, I, I, I'm occasionally on some of the others, but not as reliably as I used to be. Right. Same here. All right. Well, thanks again. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time on Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. -L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.